Well, good morning again, church. It is a pleasure. It is a joy. It is a privilege to preach to you on the Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, about our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you to bow your hearts with me and pray at the beginning before we begin looking into our passage. Lord, we praise you again and again for this day. It is a great reminder to come to you and just give you thanks for the plan of salvation that has been pivoted on this truth of resurrection. When you rose from the death, Jesus, you have proven everything to be true. And you have given us every hope that we will rise also. And we will be just like you. In new, renewed, imperishable bodies glorifying you forever. Lord, and I pray that you would now focus our minds on the word and help us to extract this truth that the truth of resurrection is absolute necessity for our faith. We cannot deny it, but at the same time, putting our hope in it, we have every blessing that we can count because everything is proven to be through resurrection of Jesus. Bless us, Lord. Bless everyone who is hearing and bless me and give me grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I will take you today to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is the greatest portion of Scripture speaking specifically on the resurrection. And as many of you have been growing in faith, many of you probably have appreciated the resurrection to a greater degree. Because if, as you're growing in understanding of the gospel, you understand that there is no gospel without resurrection. Resurrection happens to be the key to the gospel. As you're sitting in your homes going through this COVID-19 pandemic, you hear much about what is essential businesses and essential services. The government gave us some guidelines calling what essential workers and essential needs are, and there is much debate about that. But we all understand that there are certain essential services such as healthcare, that is urgent, such as law enforcement, such as communication or energy supply that are absolutely important and essential for the community. If someone shuts off your electricity or water, there's probably going to be more deaths associated with that, with, with that rather than the coronavirus itself. When we speak about our faith, Christian faith, there are certain essential doctrines that we cannot just bypass. We cannot have an argument without setting what is true and what is absolutely must be believed in order to be called Christian. Within Christian faith, there are certain things that are just simply non-negotiable. And resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those. You cannot deny resurrection of Christ and be called a Christian. You cannot deny resurrection of Jesus Christ and expect some kind of a life after death without that. In fact, if you teach that, you are a heretic and you break every hope that people may have in the gospel. And there are more and more of so-called so Christians out there. In fact, in England, the latest study was made and it conducted and it, the results of which show that up to a quarter of so-called Christians do not believe in bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know of doctrines such as Unitarians or these 
denominations that simply deny the deity of Christ. They deny the Trinity. And even though they believe in a man named Jesus who died, yet they deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one quote from one professor, college professor, who teaches religion. He says, Jesus, Jesus' rising was a symbolic one, a restoration of his spirit of love and compassion to the world. He says, what I mean is that we can reach the lowest points of our lives of going deep into a place that feels like death and then find out our way out again. That's the story of the resurrection, now tells me. And at Easter, this is expressed in community and at, at best through the compassion of others. This is liberal theology. Obviously, this man has no idea what he's talking about. Resurrection has such a deeper and such a more profound and such essential meaning for us that something like this where compassion of others during Easter is so naive and so false. But even in today's day and age, as we grow in understanding of medicine and science, more and more people are becoming skeptical about resurrection of the dead. They imagine that a body that as soon as it dies begins to decompose immediately. And they start to think and wonder, is it possible for a body to be restored? What if nothing is left out of the body? Is it possible for that body somehow, for all those elements to come together and come back to life? Is it possible? And the Bible proves that it is. This is why we're here. We're celebrating exactly that act. In the church of Corinthians, in fact, that was the problem as well. There were some people within the Corinthian church who began to doubt the resurrection of the dead. Somehow this false doctrine has creeped into the church and Paul understood the grave danger of the church. Because if you don't believe the resurrection of the dead, you don't believe the resurrection of Christ. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, you have nothing. You have no faith. In fact, you are no longer a church. So as we read this passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will read between verses 1 and 22. Please keep that history in mind. Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Our passage today is from verses 12 through 20. And I want you to see that within these verses, Paul gives you seven implications associated with denial of the bodily resurrection. In order for you believers to be able to recognize how essential, resu- rec- um, how essential the resurrection is to your faith. Your personal faith in resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential for your salvation. Your salvation that has taken place at one point. When you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And is now being carried out during your process of sanctification. And in the future at the point of glorification pivots on this essential truth of resurrection of Christ. Though this past, through this passage, we'll see that if you deny resurrection of the dead, you can consider yourself as one who is most miserable. But if you embrace the resurrection that was initiated by our Lord Jesus Christ, you will recognize how great are the benefits that you will receive through it. Let's take a look first at the problem that we are encountering here and that Paul is, have to, has to address. As I said, in verse 12, The second portion, it says, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The concept of the resurrection of the dead was denied by some of the people within the Corinthian church. You may ask, where did this come from? Where did this heresy come from and now affecting people within the body? And there are a few things that we may assume. We understand that people such as Sadducees, They did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe in angels. And in fact, all they believe is the first five books of the Bible. But even Sadducees, they were influenced by the Greek philosophy. And within the Greek philosophy, there was a problem where, unlike Jews who believed that the human person consists of the body and the spirit, the body and the soul within, the two, the outer and the inner, and when it's separated, they has, it has to come together, the body and the soul. Unlike Jews, the Greeks looked very poorly at the body. The body was considered as evil for them. And they were thinking that, hey, when I die, I will finally be freed from this outer body. In fact, they always considered soul as being a prisoner within the body that is considered the prison itself. So this philosophy somehow creeped in in within the church and it began to influence the church. And some people have begun to be doubting the resurrection of the dead. So Paul has to address this. He writes the whole chapter of chapter 15 addressing resurrection. 
And the way he begins is at the very beginning by reminding them of the gospel. The gospel, we understand it is the body of truth. The body of truth, and he reminds them where he got it from. He got it from God, from verse 3. As a first importance, what I also received. He received it from the Lord, and then he preached it to them in verse 1. He passed it on to them. So that is the origin. And then the Corinthians, they received it by faith. He says in verse 1, you also received it in which you also stand, meaning your speech and your actions testify to the fact that you believe in Christ and everything that pertains to him as we taught you. And then we come to the function of it. He says, by which you have been saved. In fact, he says, by which you are being saved. It is a process that you're being saved by the gospel. That it is vital for you to understand and accept it and stand in it for you to be saved. Because he says, if you remain and you stay, stand in it. But ultimately, it comes down to the content of the gospel. And you can see from verses 3 and 4 what the gospel itself is. Something that is undeniable. And unless you deny it, you are not a believer. First is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That has to be true for one to be saved. And that he was buried as a proof that he was dead. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the content of the gospel. And then he follows up with the proof. He says, I appeared, Jesus, after being resurrected, he appeared to Cephas. And then he appeared to the twelve. And then he appealed to 500 people at one time, being the proof that Jesus has been raised. And then he appeared to James. And last of all, he appeared to me, to the one untimely born, because I have been persecuting. I've been busy persecuting the church. But that is what has taken place. And look at verse 11, where he says, whether then it was I who has preached or they, all the rest of the apostles, any of those people from 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses who saw Jesus Christ alive, they have been preaching the same thing. We have had one content. We have had one gospel, one truth that been, has been carried on from one person to another. And then the problem begins. He says, if Christ is preached and it has been so consistently carried from one person, from God to another person, to another person, how is it that some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead. How is that possible? So he gives them next, what he gives them, is that he gives them seven implications that are associated with denial of resurrection of the dead between verses 13 and 19. He tells them, do you understand what that means if you deny the resurrection of the dead? Can you imagine the implications of that? Do you understand that this is a, you're in grave danger if you uphold that view that dead people cannot rise? And number one, he says this in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection, if there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see how he links together the resurrection of Jesus Christ with the resurrection of the dead. If you say that the people do not rise. People's bodies are just evaporate or they just rot in the ground and they return to the ground and only the soul lives on. 
you are denying that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, became a man and rose on the third day. You de- you're denying that. With that, you're denying the actual gospel. Remember, you have the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection are the vital components of the gospel. By saying that there is no resurrection and saying that there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are denying the gospel itself. Now, resurrection has been mentioned and referred to through the Bible all the time before Paul wrote this chapter. In fact, before 1 Corinthians was written. By that time, you had at least Matthew and at least Gospel of Mark written. But even in the Old Testament, you had references that there is a life after death. And that life is not outside of your body. Even when you remember Job, when he wrote, when he's suffering in his, with his sickness of leprosy, when he's writing about his future, he says this, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. Job was writing this as among the first writers of the book, probably at the time when Abraham was born, and he saw that there will be resurrection from the dead. In Isaiah chapter 26, you don't need to open there, but it says, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to departed spirits. There is direct promise of the resurrection of the dead. I'd like you to open to Ezekiel, a very famous chapter, Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, where Ezekiel writes of the vision that he had, where he was placed in this valley, and this valley was full of bones. It says very dry bones, and many of them in verse 2. And God tells him, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Again, he said, prophesy over these bones in verse 4 and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I'm the Lord. We read later that it is exactly what has happened. He begins to prophesy, and God is show him this, showing him this vision where the bones come together, where the soon sinews come together, where the muscles overlay the bones and the skin over them. And then God says, prophesy the breath, prophesy son of man, and say to breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they come to life. And this magnitude of people who comes to life They become living bodies, form this massive great army of verse 10. And then God gives him a promise. He says in verse 12, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of the graves, my people, 
I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. The Jews have had this promise that they will rise again. Their bodies who have died, they will come up and they will be with their God forever. This is what they were thinking. And now this Greek philosophies begin to influence the church in Corinth and Paul has to deal with them. So the gospel is not based on anything that is outside of the scriptures. The gospel, as we read, is based on the scriptures themselves. And if Jesus Christ has not been raised, then all the gospel can be thrown into trash. It is not true. Now, resurrection, we understand of the Messiah was also predicted. We read from Psalm 16 that Peter was referring to in his first sermon in the Acts chapter 2. We read in Psalm 22 where it speaks of Messiah who's suffering and he's being hurt. And at the end, he is exalted. And the only thing that can explain that is that he has been risen from the dead. In the Gospels, when we get to Matthew and Mark, which were written before 1 Corinthians, we see that Jesus himself speaks that he will die and rise again. He has been prophesying. He has been foretelling of what's going to happen over and over and over through the ministry that he has had. But if he has not risen, every one of these accounts, every one of these promises of the resurrection is proven to be false. The person who said that he will rise, he never rose again. But look at verse 20. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 20, which is the contrast that Paul brings up, which will refute every one of these allegations. He says this, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. I would like to spend just a few minutes on this verse. The fact doesn't change. Your perception of resurrection may change. The way you think of resurrection, the way you think how it applies to you may change. And may bring you to either salvation or you may remain in your condemnation. But the fact remains that Christ has been raised from the dead. And it says the first fruits of those who are asleep. Again, uniting those who fall and sleep, having faith in Christ with Christ himself. Let me speak to you slightly about first fruits. When we read in Leviticus, we understand that first fruits was a command that every Israelite farmer, as soon as he has the first harvest, he had to bring this sheaf, first sheaf of ripe grain, and he had to bring it to the priest and the priest would have to wave it in front of him. And what it would testify that is this farmer has a sense of gratitude because he recognized that everything that has been given to him, it is from the Lord. And it would point to two things. It would point to the fact that this is the first harvest that I received. And that this first harvest points to the promise or the pledge of the entire harvest that is to come. In the same way, Jesus Christ is called the first fruit, that he was the first one among people, among human beings who has died and then he rose again into a new body. 
a new body that is imperishable, that is glorious, that is spiritual, that is powerful. And he signifies that all of the rest of the harvest of believers and even unbelievers will get the body, but specifically for believers that he is the first one proving the gospel to be true. Because Jesus Christ rose again, it proves that everything that was spoken in the Old Testament, and there are multiple other passages that we will not go over, it proves the fact that Jesus spoke of his own death. It is true. It is true. The second implication, if one denies the resurrection of the dead, and if Jesus Christ then is not raised, then the whole preaching is meaningless. Take a look with me in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. If Christ has not been raised, then all of the efforts, all of life-dedicated work of spreading the gospel to unbelieving world is meaningless. This is what Paul is saying. Having received the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that is the first thing that the apostles have begun doing. They have preached the word and they specifically preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't need to go there, but in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, within the sermon of Peter, this is what Peter says. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up, putting an end of the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Resurrection of Jesus Christ has been preached immediately because it is what gives the power to the gospel. In the second sermon, in Acts chapter 3, verse 14, but Peter says, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we're witnesses. Peter says again, Jesus Christ's resurrection is pivotal for your faith. The whole life-dedicated work of preaching, if it's not, if Christ is not raised, then it is all in vain. It is meaningless. Paul himself, as you know, he was called specifically to preach, to preach the gospel. He saw it as a life worth work, life-dedicated work. And he says in Acts 20, verse 24, he says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord, to testify solemnly of the gospel of grace of God. That's all Paul was doing. He would go from town to town preaching the gospel as a first priority to the people. He says, For if I preach the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And here we go. If Christ is not risen, all of this preaching is in vain. In fact, all of the apostles, Peter, Paul, the 12, the 500, anyone who has heard the gospel and carried on, in fact, you, brother or sister, who is spreading the gospel, it is all in vain if Jesus Christ has not risen. It is all in vain. But as we read in verse 20, because Christ has been raised from the dead, your preaching is not in vain. My preaching is not in vain. My witnessing 
looking through the scripture and the account of Jesus Christ and believing that the man who has seen Jesus Christ alive, understanding that and spreading this news, it is effective until this day. It is powerful to save souls for Christ until this day. So the preaching is not in vain. Number three implication, he says, if preaching is in vain, and if Christ is not raised, then guess what? The preachers are a bunch of liars. They're a bunch of, shar- they're a bunch of um, frauds. It implies that if the preacher, I mean, if the Messiah is dead, who promised to deliver people from the sins, and he actually has died, then all of the gospel that is being preached, it is obsolete. There is no hope for those people. And everything that the preachers have been saying, they're a bunch of liars because this has never taken place and the gospel is not true. This would imply that men and women who received no pay, they denied worldly pleasures, they put themselves through dangers, through pain, through isolation, through imprisonment for the sake of presenting information, happened to do that for false information. But that is not true. We understand that because Jesus Christ is risen, the gospel is accurate. And all of the preachers, not only did they not preach in vain, but they preached the truth. And the truth that we have has saved our souls and it has the power to save your soul if you do not believe in Christ and those, everyone who is listening to us because it is absolute truth. We come to verse 16. And Paul says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Your faith is worthless. Brother and sister, if Christ has not been raised, then I don't even know what we're doing here. Gathering together because there is no truth. There is no gospel. There is no resurrection of our bodies after we die. Everything can be tr- thrown into trash because our faith is built on nothing. It's built on sand, built on a bunch of people who made up stuff and they carry it over and over and we carry it on. There is no point of this if Christ is not risen. But we know Christ is risen and therefore we are not under the curse, which brings us to the fifth implication if you deny the resurrection of the dead, that you are still under curse. You're in sin. If Jesus would still be dead, then the gospel is flawed. You would have no way of salvation and you're still in your sins. The one person of whom the old Testament has been speaking of in whom everyone has placed their faith because he was supposed to be that lamb of God, the son of God who was supposed to take the sin of the world, who was supposed to die for the sin of the world and rise. And he was speaking of himself that he will rise on the third day. We were watching him and he never did that. He's still in his grave and he's decomposed by now. Then You're still, you and I are under the curse. We have no salvation. We have no hope. We are doomed. We are still have the destiny toward hell. And that is grievous 
grievous implication. But since Christ has been raised from the dead, as we read, then your sins have been taken away. It is Christ who knew no sin made was made sin on yours and my behalf. The Lord separated us from the sin as far as the east is from the west and has given you and me his righteousness. In Romans 4, chapter 22, when Paul writes about Abraham and he writes to him that by faith it was credited righteousness to Abraham, he says it wasn't written just for him. It was written for us, for our sake, in verse 24, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then Paul says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Jesus took the sin of the world, including your sin and my sin, and has died for our sin. And his resurrection has proved that the wrath that, we, that was over us, that has been fulfilled. It was propitiated. And by that resurrection, God has proved that I am satisfied. I am satisfied with the punishment that my son has carried out for you. Therefore, brother and sister, you are no longer in your sin. I am no longer in my sin. We are redeemed. We are children of God. Brings us to sixth implication. If Christ has not been risen, Christians who died in Christ have perished. Again, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, in verse 18, they have perished if Christ is not risen. People whose faith you highly regarded and you read on the pages of Scripture, people who have placed their faith in one Redeemer and they have been preaching the truth and you are mimicking their faith, guess what? They are cursed. They have perished. They have died in their sins. There are men and women in your life that you have been looking up to. You've been following their faith. Well, guess what? They've died and they have perished. They're in hell. Your parents, maybe. Your grandparents, your loved ones who have died in Christ. If Christ has not been raised, they have perished. They're people who you can't wait to see. If Christ has not died, you will never see them again. But since Christ has been raised from the dead, those people are with the Lord and will rise up again. Their bodies will be raised again. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A comforting passage. You may have had loved ones die recently. There is comforting words for you. In chapter 4 verse 13 Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We Christians, we do not grieve in the same way as non-Christians grieve. 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The first people to rise are those who have already fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another, comfort one another with these words. That is the hope we have when we lose our loved ones who walk with the Lord and then they fall asleep, how Bible calls it, they die. We know that their bodies are going to be in the grave and then at one point they will rise and they will be changed and they will be given new bodies as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42 that those bodies are going to be not natural but it's going to be spiritual. It's not going to be perishable, but it's going to be imperishable. It's going to be, even though sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, sown in weakness and raised in power. There is the great hope that we have, and it's all stands on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come to the final implication for those who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So far we've said that if there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been raised. The preaching has been vain. The preachers are liars. The gospel is not true. The faith is based on nothing and is fully empty. We are still in our sin. People who have died in Christ, they have no future because they have perished. Well, guess what? Lastly, you are pitied. And you are in the most miserable state. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. If all that you have implied denying the resurrection of Christ is true, then what's the purpose of living? If there's no salvation, there's no reward, there's no future in the presence of God, Death still remains your enemy. Hell is still your destiny. What is the purpose? Why would you want to labor hard? Why would you want to serve? Why would you want to preach the gospel? Why would you want to discipline your body? Why keep it under control? Might as well say like the writer of Psalm 73, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. For what? For nothing, because there is no future. There's no salvation. There's no resurrection of your body. You're still in death. You are still destined for hell. In verse 32 of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians, his, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then might as well let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul being one who has dedicated his whole life. And he says how much suffering he's going through because he has one goal, to preach the gospel, to live out the gospel. And people like him and all the Christians who have followed his examples for thousands, for 2,000 years, guess what? They're the most pitied. And if today you're trying to live that righteous life before the Lord, 
expecting something in the future, if Christ has not risen, it's all worthless. In fact, you're the most pitied person. You can't even enjoy this life to the fullest like people in the world can. But Christ was raised on the third day. There is absolute reason for you to continue in this life. There's absolute hope for you that you will rise again and you will see the Lord in eternity and you will be with him forever. There's absolute guarantee that you're freed from your sin. Look with me in verse 54 of the same chapter. Paul writes, but when this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we'll, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brother, sister, are you weary in this life being a Christian? Are you tired of death and sickness and danger and just overall pain and worry, sorrow? Are you tired of it? Look what he says in verse 28. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It is not in vain in the Lord. Christ is alive. The gospel that you believed in is absolute truth. It has been proven to be so. The preaching that you're preaching with today, it is not in vain. Carry on the witnessing of Christ. You are the barrier of the good news. Your faith is the only one that leads to salvation. Nothing else does. You have been freed from sin, just like all those who died in Christ. You have a purpose to live, to labor, to be faithful, even in the world that is full of pain and sorrow. You have a place prepared. You have a person to meet face to face with your flesh. Let me tell you to address one, those people who still deny, who still wonder if this whole resurrection, how important is it? Is it really true? Is it really, did it really happen? I want to tell you what Paul has told to the Corinthians who are doubting and who are shifting away from the resurrection. In verse 33, he says this, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I want to tell you, my friend, repent before the Lord. You're denying the resurrection of Christ or don't care about the resurrection of Christ. You are in sin and you are to repent and you are to put your trust in the gospel that contains both the death of Christ and resurrection. Put that faith in Jesus Christ and be saved by it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your way of salvation is magnificent. 
no human being would be able to make stuff up like this. The way you have created the human being and the way you allowed man to sin and fall into sin, and even though you have designed him to fulfill your purpose on this earth, we as humans have rebelled. And yet you provided a unique way for salvation. You've sent your son who has fulfilled the law, who has fulfilled everything that he should as a human being. And he died on behalf of us. He died for the sins of the world, for our sins. And you raised him from the death. Your resurrection, Jesus, has meant everything to us. It still means everything to us. It gives us that hope. It gives us reason to live, reason to preach, reason to be faithful to you and continue on loving you until we see you in our new resurrected bodies. Father, we want to praise you and thank you. May we spread this message of resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who do not know you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.